have you ever had a, a time that you got surprising results that had nothing maybe to do with the case or the injury, but you may have found <laughs> out something a little unexpected? We, we have found people that have been involved in drug dealing, cheating on their spouse. We had just filmed them kissing their spouse, leaving the driveway, and then they drove somewhere else and, you know, they, they met somebody else after. It's just too many to describe, but uh, yeah. uh, yes, it, it, it happens more often than, than what you think. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rest. I'm your host, Megan Henry, and today I'm joined by Josh Diggs and Chris Guterres. And we are here to talk about investigations and surveillance and, you know, kind of the salacious details and information you can find on claimants and potential claimants and plaintiffs when, you know, you, you do really good surveillance, but also the groundwork that goes behind that and how that groundwork is so important. So with that, let's bring them in. Hey, Josh and Chris, welcome to Defense Defense Never Rest. How are you today? Good. Awesome. Super excited I, to be here. I'm super happy to have you guys. And we just had our like pre-podcast chat. And I don't want to get anyone's expectations too high. Um, but I think this is going to be fun. <laughs> you know, we are here to talk <laughs> about you know, the importance of investigation in, into claims. And um, but also like... I, like kind of going to share some of the war stories we've, you know, we've seen over the years. I, I've seen in, in even my cases with finding like juicy nuggets on plaintiffs. And I'm sure both of you can share so many things that you've, you've come across when, you know, in doing background investigations of claims and, you know, clients and potential clients. So um, I think a lot of people like to come here and hear the tea. Uh, and I think there's going to be a lot of tea spilled today. I think, I just think that might be the case. Yeah. And, and I'm totally okay with hyping this thing up too. This is going to be awesome. It's going to be fun. It's going to be informal. And uh, we're going to be sharing war stories and all the things that, that Megan mentioned. So I'm hyping it up. Good. So, but before we get into the super fun, I want everyone to know, you know who you are, why you're on here, and why we're talking to you, and why this is going to be so much fun. Um, and I'm going to start with Chris. Um, well, jo Josh had introduced me or mentioned Chris to me saying, you know, you should have him on. We work really closely together. He's, he'll be an awesome guest, but I, I haven't had the opportunity to really chat with you besides just, you know, the 10 minutes before we hopped on this podcast. So, right. you know, Chris, you are the CEO of strike national investigations. Um, but how did you get there? You know, where did you start? Oh man, that's a long story, but I guess uh, we're only capped at one hour, so uh, I don't want to take the whole hour to explain, uh, you know, all the hoops. But uh, in essence, uh, I, I started my career young, um, you know, because a lot of people are probably going to wonder how old I am once they see the podcast. Uh, so uh, I, I, I was that kid after uh, middle school when I was uh, 12, uh, volunteering at my local police department, uh, the Explore program. And I pretty much did that, uh, you know, every week until I turned 18. And then uh, uh, police department hired me. Uh, as an actual employee of them. So became a police dispatcher, worked in the records department, detective bureau, patrol, um, did some work in LA. So I used to patrol uh, Skid Road area of downtown LA and uh, like at two in the morning. So oh, wow. that was some ward stories in itself. Um, and then I just landed in the ICU a couple of times uh, just for some situations. And uh, my wife wasn't putting up with that, you know, getting woken up at three in the morning. She was like, hey, either... 
you know, either you're done or you're done. So um, I always had a passion for investigations. Uh, my goal was to be a homicide detective. Um, and all the guys there were like 50 years old or so. And I'm like, well, I don't want to wait until I'm 50 to do investigations. And so then I learned of the private side and in learning on private investigations, then I learned that there's an insurance sector. So then I started working for a firm um, in Irvine as a claims investigator. And I got introduced into Sub Rosa and I just kind of fell in love with it. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. You know, you're in an undercover car and you're following people and you're doing all this stuff. And and then I noticed that a lot of like uh, retired detectives, that's what they wanted to do after they retired. So I said, well, why do I go to the whole process? Why don't I just jump over and just do what everybody wants to do after they retire? Uh, so that's what I started doing. Then eventually started hearing around that SIU for insurance carriers was like elite of the elite. And these guys knew their, you know, their stuff and everything. So I was like, well, then I need to be an SIU. And uh, I applied to work for Geico Insurance, uh, SIU. I think there was probably like 98 openings, uh, 98 uh, candidates, one opening in L.A. Um, I didn't think I was going to get it because I was the youngest person there with no beard. And uh and, you know, it turned out that I got hired um, and uh, and then eventually after, you know, a couple of years of just uh, working hard, uh, I was ranked number one uh, in the whole unit. Uh, so um, and then I also did uh, SIU for Liberty Mutual. Uh, then at some point I became licensed and I said, well, you know what, I, I feel like I kind of did my time on the carrier side. I learned what I had to learn and I feel like I just I could do more, but I was only limited to uh to you know certain um limit and, and then that's when i started decided to launch my own company so it wasn't strike initially it was investigative resolutions it was just uh myself and the company and uh that's it you know just kind of started uh you know throwing myself out there trying to put my name out uh in the industry uh, and then eventually that's when the strike rebrand came in once we were able to secure uh, some national coverage. And I, ha I have to commend you on that because, I mean, starting your own business has to be a nerve wracking process, you know, to go from, yeah. you know, uh, to, to go from like a, a bigger company like Liberty Mutual or Geico, where you have some stability, you have benefits, you have a, a paycheck, you know, is going to come at a scheduled yeah. time. And then to be like, you know what? I'm going to do this on my own. And the reward is probably giant, but that first step has got to be, your stomach had to have been a knots. Like you, did you have a moment to say, Oh God, what did I just do? Uh, yes. And I, I, I want to say that it wasn't uh, because I just uh, one day from another, I said, well, let me just uh, quit my nine to five job and let me just do this. I kind of was just in a position where it was like, uh, you know, I, I, I just, kind of had to let go of uh, my career uh, on the carrier side. And then just one day I just, you know, turn in my company car and just uh, all my equipment. Next day I'm sitting outside my garage. I'm like, all right, what now? <laughs> you know, I have my license, but I have no clientele. I have, uh, you know, very little, uh, I guess, reputation on the private investigation side. I mean, on the SIU side, I was known uh, with the carrier side. And then I just, uh, you know, just, putting myself out there and just working like 16, 17 hour days, like every single day, nonstop yeah. um, with the ultimate goal of, you know, growing the company. 
Um, and, and that's one thing that, that a lot of people, I think they, they miss when they see a person in a certain position that they only see where that person is at right now, but they don't yeah. see the whole, you know, pre-work leading to that, all the obstacles and everything that went into, you know, getting there. So, uh, it's definitely not easy, uh, but definitely anybody can do it. You know, it's just the mindset of, of just having that right mindset of, you know, you're just going to crush it and you're just going to keep it, you know, keep going at it um, and nobody's going to stop you. And, and it just requires that relentless to, uh, to be able to achieve, you know, whatever you want to achieve, in my opinion. But what do you do on those days that, you know, your mindset's getting the best of you and you're like, and it's kind of eating away that you're like, maybe I made a mistake. Like, how, how do you get yourself, you know, out of that hole so you get back onto that positive, that positive thinking side? Yeah, I, I think it's important to understand that um, failure or mistakes are part of growth. Mm -hmm. And so when you realize that that is essential with uh, becoming better as a person or better as a business or a company, then you learn how to embrace that and you learn how to actually you know, make the most out of it rather than seeing it as something negative. Um, at some point in my life, I used to see it as something negative of making a mistake or just failure. And I was like, oh, man, I screwed up, you know, again. And, uh, it, and it would, you know, bring me down pretty bad. Uh, but it wasn't until I learned, obviously, with the help of my wife and, and my wife and everybody around me uh, that, no, it wasn't something to think of negatively. It was actually uh, an, an area that you can identify, you know, to improve and to make things more efficient and better, then that's when, uh, you know, I, I started actually looking forward, uh, I guess, in a way of messing up because that those were the that that's what that's the that was the only way sometimes that I could realize how to better something. Um, so, you know, so so getting somewhere to to a stable position as a company, company or having a great work product it's a it's a product of actually messing up a lot yes to, to get there you know and a lot of criticism i mean that that is something that i feel like everyone needs to talk about a lot more is that more more change comes from failure or you know setbacks or yes. obstacles than being successful because you know if you right. if you just get a good result you're like well what i did worked like <laughs> Yeah, let's keep doing it. Well, if everybody's complimenting you on, you know, on what you're doing and everybody's telling you, oh, this is great. This is great. This is great. You become complacent. Right. And you just get comfortable with the whole process. You never think that you really have to change something. But it takes somebody to come up to you and say, hey, yeah, this is great. But you know what? You're really not doing it as big as you think you're doing it. Like you need to change this or you need to improve this and that. That's when you really set back and you're like, oh, man this is true, right? I, I need to change, I need to change this and that. And then that's when, you know, your product just skips another level and it goes up. So it, it's a process. Yeah. So, so Josh, you've been very patient sitting there. <laughs> when, when, do I get when, do I, when do I get to talk about myself? <laughs> Chris is taking all the time. <laughs> for people that don't know Josh, he's a talker too. So, so for him to sit down for a couple of minutes, you know, it's just like staring, he's like, He's probably grabbing on his seat, like he's just come on, man. Like you gotta get. Oh, I love, I love, I love hearing backstories. I love hearing uh, sort of the, you know, the origin stories, how you got to where you are, and I know Chris's story, you know, well as well. So uh, I've heard it, and it's always good to just uh, hear it again because it kind of, you know, inspires people and motivates people, and uh, it's it's a cool story, and to be able to watch him from, you know, from when I got to know him several years ago to where he's at now. 
you know, super proud of the guy. And of course he's done a good job, all the things that he mentioned, but no, um, um, I'm a talker, but when it comes to letting other people shine, I'm totally okay with it. <laughs> well, now, now's your moment, Josh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you are the director of claims at Modern Rain Insurance Brokers, but you like, many people in claims, I'm sure your path was not a linear path to get where you are today. So, you know, did you, you know, grow up and go to college being like, oh, I want to get into claims or were you like the majority (laughs) that this is just kind of where you ended up? And you're like, why didn't I do this all along? Like, what a great idea. So what's your story? It all started in third grade when Mr. (laughs) Rodriguez came to our career day and I said, you know, I want to be like that guy. I want to be a claims examiner the rest of my life. No, no, you're right. Like everybody else, (laughs) they fall into it. Nobody ever thinks of, you know, claims as the, you know, the, um, the goal out of college or any of that stuff. And so I do feel like a lot of people stumble into, into the industry, uh, and then, you know, eventually find their way, get stuck, leave, find other opportunities, and then just kind of, you know, go from there. Um, so I literally started, um, again, by accident, uh, I happened to know the HR director at State Fund, and I was at Cal State Fullerton at the time, and there was this summer program that she approached me about, said, hey, you should check this out, you know, it can work with your schedule, and, uh, you know, and, and I can vouch for you and all that good stuff. So ended up applying there, became a student aide, and uh, was literally at the bottom of the totem pole in an office of about 400 people, eight-story building. Literally nobody lower than me. I was uh, I was the mailroom kid back in yep back in the back in the mail days. So um, you know, stamping mail um, as it came in, sorting it, you know, kind of uh, by adjuster into each person's cubby, you know, that kind of thing. And then eventually started slowly just working my way up uh, while I was going to college. Um, and again, no intention of staying in that industry, um, but that's just kind of the way things uh, work out sometimes. Who knew that uh, newspapers were going to die out? I was a print journalism major. Who knew that that was happening, that the internet was going to take over you know, newspapers and, and all that stuff. So um, I ended up pivoting um, and ended up moving from state fund to AIG on a claims desk, of course, um, learning quite a bit on the carrier side, uh, eventually moved to the uh, TPA side of things uh, at Sedgwick, was on a couple of national accounts there. So I had some exposure to just how things handled uh, much differently um, and um, about 14 years, that was the crazy timeline there, ended up jumping over to the broker side of things. So kind of just taking all that technical knowledge, all the things that I've learned along the way, and then applying it now to advocate for employers to make sure their interests are being taken into consideration, claims are closing when they're supposed to, um, you know, reserves are as lean as possible, that we're getting things moved along, working with vendor partners, attorneys, investigators to get the right outcome to make sure, you know, pushing them to make sure that they were you know, aggressively um, taking those interests into consideration, things like that. So, um, so it was essentially the claims is where it all started and then moved into the broker side of things before that kind of evolved uh, in over the course of several years to now um, being co-founder at Modern Rain. So how, how have you found the diff? Because you've run the gamut between the carrier, the TPA, and the broker. So, how have you found the differences between, the, you know, the type of organizations to be, and like how it impacts, you know, how things are run and how your job goes? 
Well, I think that the key is just knowing that there is such a huge discrepancy from how mom and pop shops deal with claims and just having to walk them through the process, not really knowing or understanding much, right? Not even really knowing workers' comp other than they have a policy that they pay a lot of money for. Then there's the ultra at the far end of that spectrum. There's the ultra, you know, sophisticated self-insured uh, clients that, you know, it's all their money and they know their program inside and out. They've got a lot of resources, risk managers, safety teams, you know, all of that. And so really it's just understanding where they're at in this process, where you can add value, where they need the help, where they don't, where to focus your efforts, you know, and, uh, and it's just kind of um, understanding that and then being able to have all the the tools in your tool belt to be able to yeah. add, supplement, um, instruct, educate, hold hands, whatever it is that you need to do for that particular client. Um, and, but that's where all the experience of being on a desk, you know, comes into play. And, uh, and that's ultimately sort of our value add and differentiator. And, and if I heard you correctly, so you, you've, Modern Rain is also your, your company as well. So you kind of did, you had a similar path is Chris that you, you went from the safe, the safe gig mm-hmm. to kind of going off on your own. So how, how was that transition for you? Well, it, uh, it didn't happen overnight. I always thought of myself as just the claims guy, right? I was always the person handling the claims. It wasn't until I met my current business partner, Zach Brown, who has a pretty freaking awesome story of it himself. He literally was selling lawnmowers in the Midwest and uh, it's just that I had enough. Literally Googled what is the most expensive thing to sell because he's selling $15,000 tractors. It's got to be a little better than this. So he literally Googled what's the most expensive thing to sell. And it was, um, and it was um, homes, right? Real estate and insurance. And at that time, he already had you know, 10 rental properties and was kind of done with the real estate thing. So he said, all right, well, insurance it is. And then where's the most expensive place to sell it? And it was New York and California. And, you know, he grew up in Indiana and was like, well, I'm done with uh, the snow and the winter. So California it is. So he literally, like I joke, Beverly Hillbilly style, sold all of his possessions, rented a car, came out to California, slept on the beach for a handful of weeks until he figured out how to break his way into the industry. And um, so he landed at the place where I was this is two firms ago. And, you know, there was no formal training program. It was, here's a phone book, go make 300 phone calls a day and figure it out. So very quickly, as he's calling these employers, he found out workers' comp was the biggest pain point. There's abuse of the system, just skyrocketing premiums, there's, you know, fraud, uh, just all these things going on. And so he said, well, I don't know much about workers' comp other than you got to buy it every single year. So as I'm going to these meetings, I'm going to bring Josh out with me. He seems to know what he's talking about on claims. So we would go and tag team these meetings and we would on the fly be able to diagnose the issue, put uh, some protocols in place, bring on the right you know, um, partners, whether defense attorneys, investigators, all those things, and, uh, and shore up those issues. And very quickly, he grew his book of business to the point where it was pretty evident that we thought differently. We were outside the box. We were the first ones in, last ones to leave. We just had that same mentality. And he helped kind of unleash the entrepreneurial beast in me that I didn't know I had at the time. Right. And so that all kind of worked uh, in our favor to eventually start our own thing. That's I love that story. We should have had him come on too. <laughs> 2.0. Next time. <laughs> we'll do the uh, Indiana version. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm sure now I, all our listeners are probably wondering, well, how did you, how, Josh and Chris, how did you guys meet? 
Where did your love story begin? <laughs> well, it turned out that I received a, a, a DM on Instagram. <laughs> uh, nah, there was no DM on Instagram. You're, you're, what is it that called a meet cute, right? Is that what they call it in the, in the movies? Well, well look, I'll, I'll jump in first and then Chris might have a different version of this. He might remember it a little bit differently. But, um, but I remember him a couple of years ago just reaching out and saying, and, and I get quite a bit of this. I'd imagine you might do the same. Um, as an attorney, you know, you got people reaching out to you to utilize their services, things like that. So it was, it was a very humble message. It was, hey, Josh, I see what you're doing in the industry. I like sort of uh, your ideas, your approach, your philosophy on things. Um, I started an investigation company and I'd love to be able to prove myself and just show you what I'm capable of. And I've got these lofty dreams of starting this national investigation company. And I'd love to just pick your brain on stuff. And like, even though I get you know, I don't want to say hundreds, maybe hundreds over the course of a couple months, maybe, but, you know, several times a week, you know, five to 10 of these kind of similar reach out opportunities, use my services, use this, his message was different. And it came from a different place. It was, um, you know, mentor me, it was, let me pick your brain. And it was, it was just a humble, different approach. And, and um, so I, I, yes, I said, Hey, you know what, I like your approach. This is a Saturday morning. And uh, that he sent me the message and I'm always up and I'm grinding. And I'm doing things, you know, super early, especially on the weekend. So I said, look, it's 630. I said, I've got some free time before my kiddos wake up. Give me a call and we'll chat. I literally get a call two minutes later and we had about an hour conversation and just digging into those things, understanding his background, understanding what he was about, philosophy, where he wanted to go. And I said, look, I, I appreciate, you know, the approach and I'll give you some tips. And, uh, and he was like, and he was just as he admitted, things were a little bit tougher than kind of I expected to start this company. And I thought the referrals of the opportunities are going to flow in and, it's, and it just wasn't the case. So kind of walked him through some opportunities there. Um, but more than anything else, I said, look, I've been doing this 20 years. So I've got a ton of connections. I've got a ton of friends in the industry and I got a lot of people in my bullpen that do a good job for me. So I don't have anything for you, but stay in touch and, uh, and we'll keep this going. And eventually... That, and that kind of weeds out some people in of itself because people won't reach back out. They won't remember. They won't forget. They won't send messages. But he consistently checked in. And, and, and it was always not just a check in. It was, hey, I'm going to add value. Hey, Josh, I heard about this webinar coming up. You might be interested in it. Hey, I just got these. Uh, here's some successes that we've had for some clients that might be interested to you. So his approach was just different. And it kind of aligned with my philosophy. After months and months and months of this kind of drip, I said, you know what, dude, I'm going to give you a shot because I like your persistence and I like your style. And it sounds like you know what you're doing. So just like with everything else, um, we give him a shot, proved himself, said, okay, that's pretty good. I like your report. I like the way it's outlined. I like the results. And uh, here's a couple more opportunities and he crushed them. So that kind of started it, um, you know, just, just like anybody else, they just need to crack in the door. And he blew that thing wide open to the point where you know, I absolutely trust him. I know what he's capable of and I've seen the results. And so that in, uh, you know, uh, maybe not a nutshell, but that's my version of the story as to how I remember us connecting and ultimately now doing business together. And, you know, before I go to you, Chris, I have to commend you on how your outreach though, because I totally appreciate that, that type of outreach on LinkedIn because or, or any, anyway, because I, I get so many messages and they're like canned messages and then you don't respond and then you get a second canned message followed <laughs> yeah. by another canned message. And I'm just not going to respond to that. Like if you yeah. added the personal touch to it and I think that just, 
it, it just speaks so many volumes as to like your work ethic and that you, that you, you know, you're going to do be there to do the job. Not that you're just, you know, sending out canned messages. And if you don't hear a response in a day or two, then you send out, and sometimes they get aggressive and I'm like, well, yeah. now you think I'm really going to respond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I, I mean, that's, uh, you know, like, uh, cold emailing and cold calls. I mean, that's, uh, that's, uh, in my opinion, that's the old school way, you know, of, uh, trying to do that hard sell, um, at the time, you know, like Josh mentioned, uh, it, it was tough times because I was struggling with, you know, trying to establish a book of business and, 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 and not because, uh, so a lot of people is because there was already firms that had been established in the industry for like 30 years, maybe 40 years. And they've been, they had been doing business with them for, I mean, years. So for somebody to really like stop doing work with them and say, hey, yeah, let's do work with you. I mean, it's tough. So then I just kind of pivoted that. And it was like the way that I reached out to Josh, it was more like, uh, hey, not so much of like, hey, let me do business with you. It's more like, hey, I see that you're doing great things in the industry. I see that, you know, your your ideas, your energy um, is just kind of at that scale that I, that I want to get to. Let me pick your brain on, you know, your mindset and how do I get there uh, as a business owner and as an individual? Um, so I, I do remember him, uh, 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 you know, sending back that message like at six something in the morning because I was still in bed. And then I remember my phone dinging and I'm like, I looked at it and I'm like, oh, shoot, you know, like this guy <laughs> just uh, texted me back and I jumped out and uh, gave him a call. Um, and then everything else, you know, just kind of started working up from there. But uh, but he mentioned a great point. You know, a lot of people, once they get that message like, hey, you know, here's a couple pointers, but I have nothing to send over your way. The conversation will pretty much die out at that point. They They won't follow up. Um, and, and I think it's because they don't understand the, the true value of just building a relationship with somebody. You know, I, 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 relational capital allows for uh, smaller companies to compete with bigger companies because of those strong relationships. So that was my goal at that point, it pivoted. Now let me just build genuine relationships rather than trying to sell everybody something. Uh, and at some point they're gonna see who I am as a person, my values and what I stand for. Uh, and maybe, you know, if we're meant to be, uh, they're going to relate to that and then there'll be an opportunity. And once there's an opportunity, you crush it. And then that opens up the door yeah. for more opportunities. So preparation plus opportunity, that's uh, what equals yeah. your luck. And, and I have to commend you too, Josh, on taking a chance though, on, on someone newer and not, you know, not as established and just, you know, a lot of times it's just like, just give them one shot and see how it goes. If it doesn't work yeah. out, then you just, you gave one shot and you learned a lesson, maybe not again. If it works out great, then you, then there's more opportunities available, you know? And I, I, I think, I wish, I think in, in the legal industry that happens a lot too, between like lawyers and, and carriers or clients. Like sometimes they're like, oh, well, we've used this firm for 20 years. I'm like, well, are, are you happy with everything they're doing? Get, why don't you give me one shot and see if maybe you like what I do too? Maybe maybe there's room for both of us. Maybe there's just room on some conflict work, you know, or maybe you yeah. won't like what I do at all. I, I do it all, but you don't know until you just give me the, the one opportunity to show what I can do for you. Right, right. I think sometimes it's just uh, finding that uh, that that opportunity. Some, it's just finding that value. And I and I, you know, I tell people that ask me because I get a lot of people picking my brain is play for second place. You don't need to close on this first call or you don't need to, you know, uh, I don't think anybody should expect, hey, you, you called me where we made a connection. Here's 
files or referrals. Like that's just not how it works. And so, so play for second place. Maybe there is that long-standing relationship, 10, 15, 20 years. But if you position yourself to be the go-to that they think of the minute something falls through the cracks or there is that conflict or they can't make it or scheduling issues and they need somebody else or it's outside of their jurisdiction or whatever the reason is, if you stay there in second place, there will be a time where they fumble an issue, something happens, there's a, some, there, there, something's going to happen. And you want to be able to position yourself to say, well, when they need someone to pick up where that person left off or just for a second opportunity, you want to be that person, the first person they think of. And all the stuff that you've been telling them about training opportunities, about value, about second looks, whatever it is, um, then that's going to be your shot. And when you get your shot, you got to, you know, you got to crush it, right? And then you got to deliver because ultimately relationships are important in this industry, but this is, um, this is a results driven business, right? And so you've got to continue to deliver and you do a good job and you get another opportunity, but you still got to deliver on that. The relationship can help if there's a, you know, some, some performance challenges because you can kind of talk things through, but if there isn't that relationship, you know, the minute they, the, the, the client, the person that's paying the bills, they determine that there was a fumble or something happened, a snafu, then they'll switch you right back out, right? And so like, that's where that relationship comes into play. You can also feel comfortable getting feedback. What, what were your thoughts about this claim review? I thought it went well, but ultimately you're the one that pays the bills. What did you think, right? And so the relationship helps get that feedback. It also can buy you time if there's some stumbles or obstacles along the way, but also again, just position yourself for second place because when that issue happens, You'll be the first person they think about. They'll pick up the phone. They'll pick up, uh, they'll send you an email, LinkedIn message, whatever it is. That's when you'll get your shot. Yeah. And yeah. I like, I like that, that, you know, the play for second place. We don't need to be first. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, it's second place is still okay. <laughs> I mean, as long as you get as long as you get an award, right? I mean, I can't. I, I, I mean, to Josh's point, it's, 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 it's right on the dot. I mean, the, there was there was many times where, um, you know, just just uh, staying in touch with somebody and not really, you know, trying to, uh, you know, get their business right away, but just keeping in touch. And then while that's being built, you're perfecting your work product during that time and your your skill and everything. There comes a point where they just pick up the phone because something happened. With with their current vendor and they pick up the phone and say hey you know what uh these people are no longer able to do it for us because at x y and z can you do this tomorrow you know and now that's where it's like it's your opportunity where if now you start getting a little like well you know what i can't do it tomorrow because you know i gotta go play softball or something like that uh you know you you really have to jump on it and then you have to make sure that your work product is solid and that you nail it out of the park because that's that might be the only opportunity that you get to show them what you got um and and then if they see what you're truly made out of i mean i could tell you of just one client that that happened uh recently and i mean they sent a ton of uh files after you know we impressed them that first time so uh, like I said, that preparation in anticipation of that opportunity, that's, uh, that's, that's very crucial. So, and, and let, let's dig into that a little bit too. So, you know, Chris, for, for those unfamiliar with, you know, the, the services that you're offering, you know, why don't you go into a little bit like what, what type of services you offer to someone like Josh or someone like Josh um, and, and why that's beneficial to them? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, we're, we're private investigators licensed. Um, and uh, just like, you know, most private investigators, uh, we, 
can do almost any type of investigation, but we're really focused on in insurance matters. So we're niched um, and we're focusing on a lot of the AOE, COE surveillance. We're very big on surveillance, uh, social media, backgrounds, medical canvassing, uh, you know, accident reconstruction, you name it, almost anything that you can think of that would build a proper defense for, for an insurance claim. Um, and where it becomes beneficial for, you know, people like Josh and, and, and uh, carriers is, you know, during the claim process, uh, just like a lot of claims, you know, they have merits and they're legitimate claims. There's some claims that have questionable aspects. And so a claims examiner or, you know, a claims advocate or a risk manager, it's not going to have the time to go and follow somebody around, or maybe they won't have the proper tools to, you know, do a social media search and properly collect that evidence, or maybe do a medical canvas or AOE, COE statements. Uh, so that's where we come in and we, where we add that value of jumping in right away um, and knowing how to gather uh, that information, but how to properly document it too. So in case, you know, down the line, this thing goes to trial or it goes to core, well, everything is already prepared in anticipation of that to make sure that, you know, we, we have solid grounds for our defense. So, you know, if, if you guys could, could share to the, the extent that you can without divulging, you know, client proprietary secrets, you know, Josh, is there any, can you think of a scenario where, you know, you, you had an issue or, or you wanted to investigate an issue with a, a claimant and you, you know, you called on Chris for his help that you got, you know, some either really interesting or surprising results from, you know, the, the work that Chris did for you? Yeah, yeah, no, certainly. Um, and so there's, there's probably several that, that come to mind. One recent that, that comes into mind would be, you know, there was, uh, from a work comp standpoint, you know, one of our clients had someone that was a, a post-termination file. So someone was fired uh, or uh, for, for cause, and then shortly thereafter, a claim pops up, right? And in California, you're able to do something called cumulative trauma. So it's not a specific claim per se, but it was over the course of the year, you had injuries to all sorts of body parts. And that's where they list arm, shoulder, knee, leg, wing, whatever you call it, stress, you know, <laughs> uh, everything really. And uh, we call it skin and contents. Uh, and so uh, in this particular scenario, there was, uh, it was uh, a manager of a, of a, of a car dealership and we knew exactly why he had gotten uh, terminated. There were some very specific kind of um, uh, wrong actions that he was doing that led to his termination. But, um, you know, then of course we get the attorney notice. And so this was one where we knew it was going to go sideways pretty quickly. And so the, you know, the employer knew that he was super active and, and what happened was, um, you know, that he, he was a, he was a big camper. And so they had a feeling um, that he was going to be doing some camping with his recent, uh, you know, uh, separation of the company. So, um, you know, we called, uh, we called Chris and did a roundtable with the employer, which I think is key, by the way. Um, it's not just sending, here you go, we want you to go do some surveillance. It's let's get all the parties involved here. Let's have a claims examiner. Let's have a supervisor if necessary. Let's have the employer representative, myself, the uh, investigator, uh, and let's dig into what's actually going on. I, defense attorney, if I didn't mention that, but let's all dig in here and let's get, uh, let's get on the same page as to what's going on and get on the same page as to what we want to accomplish. What do we want to find? What are we willing to commit to? Uh, and then let's, you know, five, six brains together uh, to uh, to get on sort of the, the best action plan for, you know, the best outcome. So what ended up happening was uh, we did, in fact, find that 
he was getting ready for a trip. Um, he had loaded up everything. So one night he was loading up all of his luggage and everything, getting ready to go camping. Of course, he has a bad back, neck, and all these shoulders, everything else. And Aaron things he, over his head like that. Yep, yep. He's gorilla pressing. Plus the his, breathing uh, component. Yeah. And uh, yeah. then he goes and makes a gas station pit stop and returns. And so we had a feeling he was going to go the next day. What ended up happening is he ended up going to uh, all the way up to Yosemite. And so uh, he was going a full-on camping trip. Uh, we, you know, everybody's in close communication. Another important factor when it comes to this, the pre-game work to me is really important, the round tabling, but then also as you're getting these findings, it's important to communicate to figure out, do we pivot? Do we extend? Do we cut off? Like, where are we, where are we going with this? The employer said, no, there was, a, there was, this is going to be a big claim. There's a, there's a civil component to this. We want you to fall. So so Chris and his team followed him all the way up to Yosemite and found him camping and uh, unpacking all his belongings. So long story short, when it got time to the deposition, uh, he was surprised by the line of questioning. And it was very apparent that, that they knew exactly what was going on. They uh, were able to force him into making a very favorable uh, outcome. And uh, a lot of it was uh, attributed to what we were able to get from a surveillance standpoint. So, um, yeah, that was just one story that kind of comes to mind. So I- I've worked with a lot of investigators and I've never asked anyone this, but like, how do you keep it? So you are like, at, at, like, keep yourself, you know, hidden and inconspicuous. Like, mm-hmm. how, is it just a talent that, you know, some people just have like, you know, I don't want you to give away your secret sauce or anything, but like, <laughs> just give me a little though. <laughs> um, no, that's the, there's not really any secret sauce. It, it's just mainly just uh, blending in with everybody. I mean, I tell my investigators, if you're not behaving in a suspicious manner, nobody's going to be suspicious of you, right? I mean, you could be standing right next to somebody and you can be filming them and that person won't notice you on this. You give them reasons to notice you. And it's all a matter of how you behave yourself. You know, how does a typical person drive on the street? And how does a typical person walk inside a market? You know, do they walk inside a market with, you know, shades all dressed in black and a hat and, you know, some binoculars? No, they don't walk in like that, right? So don't walk in like that. You know, we, we dress exactly like everybody else. You know, if we're in a tropical place, then we wear some Hawaiian shirts and, you know, I had some sandals. So we're, we're blending in with everybody else. Uh, plus, you know, vehicles that we use, they're, they're, uh, they're equipped, obviously, for surveillance to keep us concealed inside with tinted windows and, and things like that. So, uh, but even then, those tinted windows won't help you if you're not, if you don't know how to station in that particular neighborhood, you know, so you need to study the area, the neighborhood, what type of people live here. Let's look at the, tr- the crime statistics, you know, do they have a neighborhood watch? Because now maybe my claimant won't be noticing me, but maybe the neighbor down the line will. And they have an email chain and they will be communicating with each other saying, hey, there's a suspicious vehicle here. So now investigators are wondering, why did this person drive out and just kept staring at my car? Well, because everybody was communicating with each other. So it's it's all that pre-research leading up to the surveillance that really makes a difference. And in essence, you're setting up the case for success. So we have become very good at uh, doing that. Uh, and that's the reason why we have a 98% success rate in surveillance. I mean, yeah. almost always we get results and it's not that we have like a magical wand to you know, make people active. It's just that we make sure that we're really doing surveillance where they're at um, and that we're, being, we're stationing and that we're basically handling ourselves in a way 
that it's not going to compromise uh, the case. Yeah. I mean, even, and, and it's good that you brought up the, um, the vehicle in the neighborhood, because even like an out-of-state plate could exactly. yeah. raise super red flags. I remember- Stickers on your vehicle, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. A yeah. few years ago, I mean, nothing really came of this, but a few years ago, there was this white SUV that was like parked in front of my neighbor's house every single day. And I'm like, who the hell is that? Like, and I, and I, I had lots of theories. I'm like, they must be having an affair. That's like the boyfriend. Like, and then the vehicle was just gone. It was probably someone, you know, visiting for the week. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things, you know, that, uh, it, it's not just literally getting in a car and parking outside a house. I mean, you need to understand what optimum coverage is. You need to understand how to properly tell somebody. Uh, I mean, how do you get coverage when you're following somebody for to Yosemite, yeah. you know, for four hours? You know, how do you how do you follow them without even noticing you at all? Like when they're exiting at those gas stations and all stuff, there's there's a proper way of following somebody. Uh, and, and, um, and and like I said, it's not really a secret sauce. It's just really the way that that you handle yourself uh, when you're out there. Um, but you could, I guess you could say in a way it could be, you know, experience of the investigators too, of anticipating certain situations, uh, and knowing the area as well, because if somebody makes a turn and they go inside, uh, you know, a cul-de-sac, and if you know that that's a cul-de-sac, you know, that you're not going to make that turn right immediately, uh, behind them because that's going to burn you. Uh, but, but it's all about just, you know, multitasking, keeping tabs on, on the area and everything else. And do you have like multiple people on the same surveillance or does it matter depend on the type of job it is? It, it depends on the case. Usually, you know, uh, most surveillances are handled by one investigator. Uh, if it's maybe a large uh, apartment complex with multiple exits, we may get a second investigator uh, involved. Uh, but uh, I, I actually have a friend of mine who's the uh, former uh, special agent in charge of the FBI in Nevada. And he said, Oh man, I, I don't know how you guys can handle surveillance, you know, just one man or two men, because they're used to handling surveillance with 10 people plus an airplane and putting trackers on cars. And we don't do that. You know, we, we one, it's illegal to put tracker on a car, you know, under certain circumstances, and you have consent of the register owner. Uh, and two, we, we don't, we just don't have the resources of an airplane, you know, following these people around. So uh, it, it could get a little bit more difficult to just do it with one or two surveillance, uh, two investigators. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just going back to the basics, you know, don't, don't forget your basic uh, skills of. And I, I can't, I can't forget about those safety. Cause I mean, you have to have, you know, safety for yourself and your investigators in, in mind, because sometimes you don't know what, yeah. you know, what someone yeah. might have in their vehicle or their home. And, you know, they could potentially yes. be in a compromised situation. Um, yeah. So, you know, how, how do you navigate those, those waters with, you know, the potential safety risks? Um, it goes back to the same thing of studying the area, knowing where you're going to be, uh, you know, doing surveillance or, or even doing a neighborhood canvas or, or some door knocks. Uh, it's, it's just knowing, you know, the, the, the battlefield that you're getting yourself to, you know, um, and I love it, you know, just doing some uh, uh, crime statistics search of the area. Uh, you could see, hey, in the last three days, there's been three assaults with the deadly weapon. You know, maybe it's not a good idea that I'm wandering around for too long here. 
Uh, but also, you know, a lot of our investigators are also, you know, they have prior law enforcement training aside from SIU. Uh, so they know how to handle themselves outside. I always say that you get more with honey than with vinegar. So it really, it's the way that you handle a situation. Cause we do get people sometimes, it might not be the claimant, right? But maybe just neighbors and they'll come out and they're upset because you've been parked outside their house uh, for so long. And maybe this is two blocks away from your claimant and they'll knock on your window, bum, 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 you know, like, Hey, what are you doing here? Can I help you? Uh, and it's really the way that you handle yourself. You know, if you handle yourself in a mean way, like, Hey, you know, like it's none of your business or that's just going to escalate the situation, right? And there's no need for that. But if you handle yourself in a way like, hey, you know, I'm so sorry that we're parked here. We're just doing a survey of the area. You know, I'm just going to be here for a couple more hours. Uh, if, you know, if this is not okay with you, I'll go ahead and move. If you take an approach like that with somebody and you just smile and you're just nice to them, like nine out of 10 times, they're going to say, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Feel free to, as a matter of fact, they'll offer you water or something. Hey, you can stay here. Like, uh, I'm just wondering because I saw your car and I never seen it around. And you could even say, yeah, you know what? It's just, uh, you know, we're doing a survey of the construction, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you, you're probably going to see me here tomorrow, maybe the day after, just just so you know. And, and so at that point, they won't bother you no more. Uh, yeah. But sometimes we do have to notify, you know, local police department and, and put in what it's called a code five, which is a, a stakeout notice and they'll add us to their dispatch uh, um, center. And so now police officers know that if they get a call, well, the dispatch center know that if they get a call of suspicious vehicle with that particular plate, they know not to send police officers out because there's an investigator in that vehicle yeah doing surveillance and that may compromise the case if they approach us. So we, we work alongside with law enforcement too when, when we're doing some of these operations. That's pretty cool. See, I just, yeah, I just learned something new. I learned a code five. So if I yeah. want to be smart and I want to test an investigator, I'm like, so what's your last code five, right? So they, they don't know what I'm talking about. I'm like, oh, you're not legit, dude. You're out. You're not legit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so Josh, do you ever have, I mean, obviously, you know, when, when you're, you're hiring Chris or some, you know, someone like Chris, there's an added cost to it. Have you gotten, you know, some pushback from, from clients or insurers that they, they don't want to go down that route or they don't think it's worthwhile. And you kind of have to, I mean, as a broker, you're in a way, I think brokers sometimes are like TPAs, the middlemen, like you kind of have to smooth things over on both absolutely. sides. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And so it, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very important thing to be cognizant of, right? Because cost is going to, always factor in, whether it's for the third-party administrator, whether it's the carrier, whether it's the employer. Uh, so a lot of it is just making sure that, um, that everyone is collectively flushing out the best opportunity. So sometimes it makes sense to do an activities check, which could be you know, a couple hundred bucks. Maybe a medical canvas makes more sense. Maybe um, there, there's, some, there's some other options, right? Um, so it doesn't always have to be, all right, let's do three days of surveillance. In fact, that's part of sort of my, my strategy really is to always flush that out. Does this make sense? Do we, do we have enough information here uh, that it warrants us doing surveillance? If not, maybe an activities check, maybe a couple of different activities checks. Maybe we can do some social media background check to find out what this person's up to and what their activity level is. Let's flush out uh, the deposition kind of transcript. Let's figure out how we can best utilize what we got here because nobody ever wants to waste resources. Nobody wants to, to get a, a, a call from the, um, 
from the carrier, from the employer to say, hey, we just wasted X and X amount of dollars sitting in front of somebody's house for eight hours. That should not happen, right? And so that's where communication is important. That's where the roundtabling of the claim beforehand is important. You know, it, it would be foolish of me or anybody else to ever say, here's a, here's a, a limitless budget, go figure it out. It needs to be much more um, you know, targeted than that. What's the best use of our resources? And that's the way to approach it. That's why I think that roundtable is so important. And any, any <clears throat> good vendor <clears throat> investigator that's truly a partner is going to understand that and not try to upsell or try to maximize the revenue on that one opportunity or that one surveillance. They're going to, if they truly are a, a, a partner in this, they're going to be cognizant of that too and constantly be looking out for that. They're going to give you a call four or five, six hours into this and say, you know what, guys, we don't need to stake out, you know, this opportunity. I don't think they're home. Let's shut it down. Let's revisit it. Let's consider a weekend. Let's consider a holiday. Let's consider their birthday coming up. And that is the sign of a true partner is when they're cognizant of those costs and resources too, the time, effort, everything else. And they want to be a partner in this because they're not thinking short-term, they're thinking long-term partnership. And that's who you want on your team, regardless of whether it's investigator, defense attorney, broker, claims advocate, anybody, they need to have that same mindset. And when they approach it that way, then you truly do get the sense that they are in this with you and not out to make a buck because nobody's going to get rich off of one account, one file, one referral, want anything. So it's long-term strategies. And that's why it's so important for me when I need to recommend services to a, a client that's paying good money for a lot of these things, they need to know that I've got their best interest in mind and that we're flushing out all these ideas and opportunities, philosophies, approach, all of that. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I as, as the attorney on many like files that I've, I've had investigations on, I hate nothing more than getting like, not a call, just the final report, be like eight hours on nothing. Okay, well, <laughs> like yeah. maybe a check in like an hour or two in be like, this is where we are like, you know, and there's been on the flip side, I've appreciated other times with that similar thing, like, look, it doesn't look like anyone's home. I recommend we hang back and not do anything today and come back, you know, over the weekend or, you know, whatever it may be, because I hate getting that report saying nothing happened. And then I have to send a, a report to the client with the bill saying, Oh, here's our investigation report. They didn't yep. find anything. Oh, but it's, you know, $700. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Josh and Josh makes a great point, you know, with uh with with just uh, uh you know, partnering up with with uh, firms and vendors that just truly care about the outcome of the claim because they won't go out for the quick buck. They're actually going out uh, you know, because they're, they're trying to add value to your claim. But in my opinion, I mean, if, if you're a company and, and you're just going out with, uh, you know, to just whatever address is provided to you, for example, surveillance, just, just uh, for topic purposes, and, uh, and, and then just sitting there and then there's no activity, ultimately that, that hurts the, the, the image and reputation of your company because it makes you look mediocre as a company. Like you, you, can, you can get results, right? And so at least on my end, you know, of growing the company Strike, I, I don't want Strike to have that, uh, that reputation. You know, Strike needs to have the reputation that as soon as somebody sees the name, oh, these guys will get it done, you know? And, yeah. you know, they, they have a 98% success rate, but I mean, just send them something and send them the worst file and they'll get it done. Um, and a lot of it is just doing your homework, just like showing up to a test. You don't show up to a test without studying. It's the same thing when it comes to an investigation. You need to do your homework 
because uh, I could tell you in the last, you know, two or three weeks out of all the files that we received, we had at least like 12 that the claimant was not living where they said they were living. Mm -hmm. And so had we gone out and had we done surveillance at that address, we would have not gotten anything. Um, but because uh, doing that pre-surveillance research um, and, and making sure that we fully identify where these people are living, the vehicles that they're driving and all that information, that's helpful because now when you show up, oh yes, their vehicle's right there. Um, and this is the only point of exit that they can come out from. There's no back exit. Um, and just fully knowing the area, I mean, you're, you're setting up the case for success. Not only is that gonna make you look good, but the client is gonna love the results. Yeah. Uh, and next time, guess what? They're gonna think of you. Um, and, and that's just the process, yeah. Do you find you get better results when people are out and about or when they're at home, like on their own property? Because in my experience, I've I've heard great things. You find great information of people on their property. Any case I've had, if someone's home, I never get anything. It's like they're sitting in their house and they never leave. Um, so what's been your experience with that? I, I think that it depends on the type of claim. That's where it's important to really roundtable, uh, you know, and doing doing a, a, a claims review and really flush out what the ultimate objective is of this claim. Are we suspecting fraud or do we really just want to see the activity level of this person? And if we just want to verify their activity level because, you know, they're claiming sort of injury. So we just want to see if they're really staying home or if they're out and about working, you know, working out and everything, then there's certain things that we could do during the surveillance to verify if the person is home. And even just the fact that they're not active outside their home could still be material to the claim because it shows that their home you know, not really active. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's where I think, you know, to Josh's point, round tabling before actually engaging in the surveillance or any other type of investigation, it's very crucial because now you can determine what's material uh, versus non-material uh, to that specific claim. Because uh, there's not really a checkbox. I mean, you know, uh, obviously you, Megan, as an attorney, you know this and, and Josh, that, you know, you can't really tackle every single claim with the same checklist. I mean, that you have to pivot uh, depending on what the ultimate objective is of that claim, what's being alleged and, and what materiality does, you know, does, uh, does the investigation bring on uh, to the whole process? Yeah, I, I hear you with the, the checklist too, because I, I think that that's a really important point. Like I have a checklist for every single file, but that right. checklist is different for every exactly. single file. You know, yes. it's not like, I, it's very original to whatever that particular yes. case needs. And just yeah. because I do something in case A doesn't mean it has to be done in case B. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I think what, what you do is, is the same way, you know, yeah. because you're not, you're not going to get the results that you want just doing it the same across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So have either of you had an experience though, that, you know, like shit hit the fan. <laughs> like you had, you had your round table, you had it set up, you know, Chris, you did like you followed all, you know, your protocols to a T and then like, it just, it blew up in your face or not so much blew in your face, but just did not go how, you were envisioning it to pan out you want me to jump in there first <laughs> yeah so, i'll leave that one oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'll, I'll jump in there I, I wouldn't say shit hit the fan i just think that sometimes you know you you don't get results mm -hmm. right and nothing is 100 sure. so the way that um you know learn the hard way sometimes um i think ultimately it goes back to some of the things that we've already touched on if you can um 
if you can manage to, to put in the work beforehand by way of a roundtable meeting, by really extracting as much information as you can, asking for all the things that you should have already, a picture, an ID, driver's license, all these things that, you know, they don't come in with the initial referral. If you don't do the digging, then you're not necessarily going to set yourself up for success. So I wouldn't say shit hit the fan. I would just say that you don't maximize your uh, opportunity for success. And so it takes that extra step. It takes the person that's ha handling that assignment to like read this and say, I just don't have enough here. I don't think that we're going to be successful. Let me ask for a few more things. Let's pause. Let's all get on a call. Spend five minutes. Let me give you some agenda items that I'd like to, to touch on so that we're not wasting anybody's time. So let's get this, 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 and this. And then send me the depot, send me the next uh, doctor's visit, um, you know, um, report, send, give me a handful of these things. And now all of a sudden that could completely change the way that you uh, would approach this. Now that I have this, wow, he looks way different on, than he does on his social media, or maybe he's a whole different person or, um, you know, it just could change the approach. And so that's, that's what I would go back to is that in order to maximize your success, you have to put the work in collectively on the front end, all the information that gets sent over. You can't be lazy about it. You can't just check a couple of boxes, shoot an email over, you know, it's going to take a few extra minutes, but those extra minutes that you spend collectively on the front end can absolutely pay off uh, on the back end by way of results, by way of findings, by way of not wasted effort and movement, and ultimately having to feel that call to say, hey, you know what? Uh, we were so excited about this. We spent three days and didn't find crap. That is not fun because now everybody says, well, crap, now that $100,000 evaluation that we were talking about, this doesn't impact it at all. We're still at 100K and maybe we need to settle this. Opposed to, hey, we got a 100K valuation on this thing, but after everything that we found, everything that we, we, we uncovered completely obliterates that. <clears throat> now maybe it's not only is it not worth 100K, Maybe it's only worth 10K, but now we're considering even maybe taking this thing to trial, getting to take nothing on, a, on the work comp side of things and, uh, and just changing the, the process altogether, shifting gears. It, it can just open a can of worms. It can reinforce what you already thought. And maybe it is as bad as you thought, but maybe you needed to spend that two, three, four, five thousand dollars to say, yep, they surely are limping around. They do look like they're hurt. We need to settle this thing as soon as possible and save the money on the additional litigation costs or what, everything else. So, so I, I think it all comes down to just the prep work and then the communication. Those two things, um, if you put in the work beforehand, you'll maximize the outcome. And then during the course of the investigation or surveillance or whatever the, the, the uh, activity is, as long as you're communicating throughout and getting feedback, then you're going to set yourself up for success. So not quite a shit hit the fan type moment, but just like the lull of, man, we didn't get what we wanted. So just put in the work and yeah. you'll maximize the opportunity for success on the back end. How about this? Have you ever had a, a time that you got surprising results that had nothing maybe to do with the case or the injury, but you may have found <laughs> out something a little unexpected? <laughs> A lot of times. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, I, I mean, when, when you're following somebody around, right, you, you get to examine them uh, in a third person, you know, position. And so you're really documenting other activities. So, I mean, we, we have found people that have been involved in drug dealing, uh, uh, people that have been involved uh, that were cheating on their spouse, uh, you know, that we had just filmed them kissing their spouse, leaving the driveway, and then they drove somewhere else and, you know, they, they met somebody else after. I mean, you, you name it. I mean, you, you, you see a ton of different uh, 
uh, scenarios that is just too many to describe. But uh, yeah. uh, yes, it, it, it happens more often than, um, than, than what you think. Yeah, so sometimes those ancillary discoveries are wildly unexpected, but humongously impactful, right? Hey, maybe the reason they haven't been working and they've been exaggerating these claims is they're going to school for nursing or, you know, they've got they're driving for Uber on the weekends and um, or they've got a whole nother side hustle. They're selling houses, multi-million dollar listings on the side. I mean, there's there's been a ton of stuff that you uncover that you may not find in a, in a surveillance opportunity. It could be a background check, it could be all these other things. Um, but that can absolutely change the course. Now, all of a sudden, it makes sense why they're exaggerating these claims to want to get back to work or slow playing. It could be an actual injury, but they're certainly pumping the brakes on getting back to where they should be or exaggerating their complaints and things like that. So that, of course, then you take that information, then a lot of it is what you do with it. So mm -hmm. it's great to get all this stuff, but now you need to technically, again, this might involve another roundtable. Hey, we got awesome surveillance or we uncovered some bonus material. What do we do with this? Now let's huddle up. Do we figure out, do we cut off benefits? Do we send a denial notice? Does it change our valuation? Do we tell them that we caught them and then, you know, going for a, a settlement opportunity? Do we blindside them and then have a, you know, so there's all, all these um, opportunities pop up and, and you see them quite often, but it's a matter of what do you do with it? And that's, I think, what the differentiator is in, in the execution is it's great to have this information, but you need to figure out how to utilize this to maximize the approach, changing evaluation, settling, whatever it is. But if you don't, if you, you get all these, you know, you put in all the work, and if you don't know how, what to do with it, then you're really wasting the effort. Yeah. I, I mean, and that is the, the part of the critical analysis of it, too. Like, I, I have a matter right now that I have a very damning piece of information that we've had for a long time. And we, we are very being very strategic about when that information is, is revealed, you know, because yeah. you know, we don't want to reveal it too soon. We don't want to reveal it too late. We don't want to, we have, there's a little sweet spot. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, and I think that's key because, you know, it, it's going it, to, that's where it, it's important to know what matters to all parties. You know, if it's uh, like, let's say, for instance, it's a high deductible program and it's the employer's money, they might be interested in getting this thing shut down, right? That we we uncovered this. I want to I want to wiggle my way out of this claim. I want to be done with it. They could say, hey, look, we're a manufacturing company with 300 employees in one fixed location. Word gets out that this person's taking advantage of us and that's going to it's going to prompt three, four, five, six, seven, eight other claims. So maybe the direction now is we want to pursue a fraud opportunity and, and really kind of dig in. So I think that's where the communication is so important, understanding all parties and then flushing it out and then executing the game plan. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, and I mean, I, I think if we were to come like full, full kind of circle, this is just about running out of time, full circle. It's knowing when to engage someone like Chris, Go at doing the, the legwork to make sure that money is well spent and then utilizing the information at the appropriate time. Absolutely. I'll piggyback on that point because I think there's one thing that, that uh, um, to enhance what you just said, and that's surrounding yourself with the top talent. So yeah. when an employer, when a carrier, when an examiner reaches out to you and says, Megan, I think surveillance needs to happen on this. Who do you recommend? They may have someone in mind, but sometimes they're gonna they're gonna um, you know they're gonna defer to you, and that's where 
you or anybody in that position that's re making those recommendations, that's where you need to trust the person on the other end. You need to be able to vouch for their service. You need to be able to hold them accountable. You need to have experienced um, what they're capable of, and then also be able to relay that to them. So yes, all those things are important, but when it gets you know, kind of teed up for you, that's where it's important to have those people in your bullpen, people that you know are capable of delivering, of executing the game plan, communicating it throughout and making you look like a rock star. That's super important to me. Anybody I work with, defense attorney, TPA, anybody, investigator, like they need to be able to deliver and ultimately make me look like a rock star so that I can make my client look like a rock star. They selected me to help them with their claims process. I need to make sure the people I bring in can knock it out of the park for me, communicate over communicate and know that, hey, there's my reputation that's being, you know, that's vouching for you and that is on the line here. So, um, you know, you need to come through, you need to be able to deliver and I need to know that you can so that the next time I get asked this question, I feel comfortable recommending that person. And that's, that's a big responsibility. That's why a lot of people will punt and they'll say, you know, I don't know, here's four or five people, good luck, or you pick, you know, I, I don't have a preference, but when you can be asked that question, then be able to deliver and answer that decisively, follow up to make sure it gets handled, then that strengthens your bond with the client. That strengthens your bond with that vendor partner. And that also is just going to make, uh, it's just going to reinforce that you made the right decision. But also ultimately, the person that's making that, that uh, recommendation, value, value, value add. Because now yeah. this person, every time they need to reach into their tool belt. They know exactly who to go to, which is also why it's important to network and prepare yourself for that. So when you get asked that question, I need to know who to go to for that. And you know, it, for whatever the expertise is, it may not be me, but I need to know who to go to. And that's almost as important as being able to answer that question. Yeah, yeah. it's, and it's the, the team assembly and the networking to be able to recommend people to fill fill that role i think is of utmost importance yep and and utilizing i think somebody that that really specializes in that field like you're not going to use a family attorney for an insurance matter right <laughs> like they just don't they just don't overlap um and it's the same thing when it comes to investigators right there's just so many disciplines on, on the investigation side criminal defense i mean you name it uh but insurance in itself it's it's a discipline that uh, you know, it's, it's, it's already difficult as it is. And, and, and you truly need to understand it. So when you're out, let's say taking statements from somebody, you're maybe trying to identify subrogation opportunities. But if it was somebody that, you know, maybe is just a generalist and doesn't specialize in insurance, they wouldn't even know what subrogation is. Um, and, and where to even, you know, uh, identify those those uh, opportunities and maybe communicate them back to the client and say, hey, look, we took the statement from this person or we did this surveillance. Uh, these are the findings, but we also found this and we think that this could be beneficial to the claim in X, Y, and Z. You know, and now it becomes like Josh said, now you're a partner rather than just a, a, a random vendor out there and everybody's commu uh, communicating with each other with the ultimate goal, right? How do, how do we resolve this claim uh, in, the, in the most proper and efficient way uh, for everybody. Um, and um, yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that all vendors should be looked at more as partners than vendors. I hate the term vendor. It sounds like I'm buying food at a carnival. I don't like it. You know? yeah. <laughs> I just don't like thinking of it that way. You know, it, yeah. it's not Yeah, no, that's, that's so true, though. The, it's the V word. 
right? And I tend to, <laughs> I tend to use it uh, too often. And really, I, I catch myself because really, if they are a partner, then that's how we should refer to them as, right? And there are certainly those that feel transactional. Here you go. Here's the product. Good, maybe not good. That's transactional. That's more the vendor, whereas the partner is the more collaborative approach that we've been talking about nonstop. That truly is a, a partner. And, um, and that's where the relationship is so important. Yeah, I think it's particularly even like with investigations too. It, it is a it's a partnership. Like the more you work together, you understand how each other works and the results and the and what you're going to get out of it. Um, you know, it's it shouldn't be a, a one off scenario. You know, I even with court reporters, you know, you, you, there's certain court reporters that you you want to stay with that company because you know the work that they give and you you want to keep with yeah. that relationship. So, yeah, let's get rid of vendor. <laughs> Ditch the viewer. Yes. Professional partnerships. <laughs> well, go. I'm going to go to you, Josh, and then, and then to Chris, let, you know, for our, our listeners out there, you know, let them know where they can find you if they need to get in touch with you, if they should, you know, need to bounce ideas off of, um, and particularly for Chris, if they need your services, I want to make sure that you get your names out there. So our listeners can recommend, recommend you to, to their own clients or use, retain you themselves. So I'll just start with sure. you, Josh. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, appreciate you having me on, by the way. Um, this is uh, this is fun. This is light. This is conversational. I cracked a few jokes. I think uh, the hype the that I started with, I think we lived up to that part of it. Um, but uh, no. And so uh, Josh Diggs, uh, Director of Claims at Modern Rain Insurance Brokers. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Josh Diggs. Uh, email is jdiggs, D-I-G-G-S, at modernrain, R-E-I-G-N.com. And uh, so email uh, I got my, I I'm crazy like that. And so I've even got my cell phone on my LinkedIn. So if anybody wants You're to reach brave. out, wants to, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel these kind of things all the time. So you want to pick my brain, you got a claims question, you want a strategy question, you need help with a, a vendor recommendation, by all means, uh, reach out. I'm here to help out. Um, I, I pride myself on being a mentor in this industry. I had some key mentors growing up. And so I like to be able to, uh, to offer that back to the industry at large. And so, um, a lot of people take advantage of it. So, feel free. I'm offering it. I'm putting it out there. So feel free to contact me if I can be an assistance of, uh, be of assistance in any way. Awesome. And how can everyone find you, Chris? Uh, so same thing, LinkedIn, uh, Chris Gutierrez, uh, my email, Chris, uh, with an H C H R I S at strike. That's S T R Y K E I N V.com. Um, and I also have my phone number on LinkedIn. So, uh, if anybody that just needs to We're crazy. reach out and reach out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get a couple calls, you know, from like other countries too. And, uh, and just some Nigerian princes only, <laughs> but yep. Always happy to help with anything. Well, I, I thank you both for, for coming on. And I, I, I think we still have room for a part two. So I'll leave it out there that maybe we'll come, you guys will come back for a part two and we'll share some more, more stories and, and tips and things for, for everyone to listen to. But for, for everyone out there, of course, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the Defense of Arrest on Apple Podcasts. And you can also find us on YouTube at TDR, TDNR Podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you.